What's FAFSA, or work-study, or a Pell Grant? Or is it irresponsible to take out a college loan or to take it out from a bank? This week on College for Christians, we take listeners inside the world of college financial aid with someone who's worked there. Welcome back to College for Christians. This is Chris Garrett, history professor at Bethel University, joined by Sam Mulberry, history professor at Bethel University. And a special guest we'll introduce in just a second. So a couple of weeks ago, listeners, we devoted an episode to the rising cost of college and the question of whether it's worth it, what the value was. Then last week, we surveyed different forms of what's sometimes called early college, AP, dual enrollment, uh, post-secondary options, all of which can help reduce the cost of higher education. But at a certain point, you do have to pay for a higher education. So this week, we're looking at other ways to reduce the cost, but also to pay for whatever is left on your bill. It's a very nuts and boltsy kind of episode of College for Christians about financial aid with special guest Alex Hintz. Alex, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. So uh, Alex is a former student of mine, but I'll let you kind of tell that story. Alex, just introduce yourself. Maybe uh, tell us like where you're from, why you came to Bethel, and then we'll kind of take you into the world of financial aid from there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm originally from uh, Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, uh, which the the fun fact about that is every other letter is an O. I'm not sure of how many words are like that. That is a really good spelling tip. <laughs> I now can do that. Yeah, it, it helped. It helped to know that fact as a kid, learning how to spell my hometown. But uh, toured the Midwest for colleges in in high school and. I was the student that was very grumpy about it, uh, partly because I didn't know where I wanted to go. None of them felt right um, and came to Bethel and I knew instantly this is where I wanted to be. My whole demeanor changed. My dad remembers like the light bulb moment where all of a sudden I was happy to be touring this college instead of grumpy. Um, but was a political science major, uh, graduated in 2014 and uh wanted to stay here and I, I went into financial aid because they were the ones offering me a job. So when you say wanted to stay here, you wanted to stay at Bethel or stay in the Twin Cities? Both? Would... Both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bethel was for sure the, the preferred place because okay. I loved it here. Um, but the Twin Cities is amazing too. Sure. Well, give me an idea. I like the financial aid office is on the same floor as our department. I'm not sure I've been back there since we moved up there. Just give me a sense of like how big is the financial aid office at a, at a school like Bethel? Like how many people work in financial aid? Yeah. Rough number 10. Okay. And so, yeah, we're a college of like 2,000 plus undergraduates with graduate seminary programs too. Um, uh, so what was, what was your first job in financial aid? Yeah, I did loans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was the educational loan specialist and I processed the uh, 2,000 students worth of, of college loans. So were you actually talking with people or was it mostly you were doing the kind of paperwork of people have submitted an application and you, and you put it through or both? Yeah, both for sure. Yeah, I'd say half my job was was counseling mm-hmm. students in their award packages, which we'll get into that in a little bit. Yep. Um, and then the other half was just processing okay. the, the paperwork. Is that an unusual way to get into financial aid? That you did political science, were looking for a job, it was at your alma mater, or I mean, are there pathways into financial aid? Is there kind of a traditional story of how people get involved in this kind of work? Yeah, I think the only pathway is. Uh, a student worker okay. works in the financial aid office and decides to stay sure. after graduating. But yeah. like, what kind of skills are important if you're a financial aid worker? Yeah, I think it's it's a mix of understanding numbers and data, spreadsheets, etc. But there's definitely a, a people aspect of it. 
I think financial aid is one of the scarier topics of the higher education world. And so being able to have those conversations is an important skill to have. Okay. So you started doing loans. What other kinds of work did you do while you were at Bethel at least? Yeah. Um, I worked with the build program, mm-hmm. uh, at Bethel, um, and, uh, it's a post-secondary program for students with developmental delays, learning disabilities. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Loved that. Um, but really did a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I worked with scholarships, with, uh, donor scholarships when, when someone donates money to, to give the students, worked with them. Uh, loans, obviously, a little bit with work study, which I think we'll get into as well. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this is kind of where I lose track of your story a little bit. Like, I remember we'd see each other every once in a while or have lunch. Uh, what, what, tell us your story after you left Bethel up through the present. What else have you done, especially in the world of financial aid? Yeah. So after leaving mm-hmm. Bethel, uh, where I ended as a financial aid counselor was, was my official title. Uh, I was hired as the director of financial aid at North Central University in downtown mm-hmm. Minneapolis. Um, and then uh, became the director of student financial services there uh, at, at North Central, which oversaw uh, the billing and the financial aid. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just recently, in the last four weeks, moved to a company called Illusion, uh, which does uh, essentially computer systems for, for colleges. Okay. All right. So you've been on multiple sides. You know, you, I don't know what your financial aid experience was, but you were an undergraduate student who may have been part of that. You've worked in different parts of it and now you're in kind of private sector connected to it in some ways. So you are the perfect guest. We, we've established your bona fides, right? So now I feel like we can throw any question, ask you. And I imagine there must be a lot of questions. I'm not surprised to hear you say this is one of the scarier parts of higher ed. Um, kind of a, a theme like throughout this podcast and the reason we're thinking about this is it, it is kind of Byzantine and opaque, a lot of higher ed, but especially the part that you attach money to in its own terminology. And I'm sure this raises all sorts of anxieties for parents and students once they're doing this. Um, well, and I think what's interesting about that is like um, we both work in higher ed and have for a long time. And this is an area we still is an utter mystery to us. Yeah. Like, like even people who work here, it's like, that's a black box that once it's financial aid, you go talk to them. I can't help. I can help them with almost anything, but that I, I struggle with. I mean, until we become parents of college kids ourselves, I'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, so boy, I, I, I told you before we started, Alex, I had two kind of big questions. And the first one is maybe gets us started. Um, what's a really common question you got when you would be meeting with a uh, student, parents, and I don't know if it's both or if it's one or the other, but like, what are, what's one or two common questions you often would hear from um, people starting their college experience? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest question, um, and maybe I'll back up and say that in the, in the process, typically students are told, here's how much it's going to cost. And then they're told and introduced to the financial aid side of things. And so the initial question that everyone has is how the, how the heck am I going to pay for this huge tuition bill? And that's essentially my whole job as a financial aid counselor was answering that question. How are you going to pay for college? How much is this? I mean, this must vary considerably. It's not like they're kind of like stock. Anth- I mean, I know they're kind of categories of aid and maybe kind of levels, but it must vary considerably depending on 
personal family circumstances um maybe we should start talking about fafsa at this point <laughs> i don't know how you want to go yeah yeah it it does vary considerably um you mentioned the fafsa and that's that's the entry point to financial aid and i think anyone who's interested in going to to college should complete the fafsa mm-hmm. it stands for the free application for federal student aid and most schools including bethel use that as uh, their their starting point for figuring out what is this student eligible from the government, mm-hmm. from the school, from maybe potentially other outside private organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the starting point. Mm-hmm. So um, don't necessarily assume. Well, my my dad makes too much money. Our household income is too high. You should go ahead and fill out the FAFSA. In any circumstance, almost any circumstance? Yeah, I would always say any circumstance because mm-hmm. you never know. Right. And you never know if, um, you know, down the road the school's like, oh, we, we have this pot of money that came up and it's only eligible for people who did the FAFSA regardless of the results. Right. So sometimes it's just important to do it, not even what the results are. Yeah. Now, I'd imagine at least some people must kind of hear them think, wait a minute, I'm going to a private Christian university, why do I have to do a federal government form? Um, but you mentioned like this is then used for lots of purposes, not just federal aid. But maybe we should talk a little bit about what is the role then of the federal government in the larger system of financial aid, even at a private university like Bethel or North Central? Yeah, yeah. So the federal government spends, I don't have the number in front of me, but surely billions of dollars on scholarships and grants, which is um, the free money, quote unquote. Um, in other words, money students just get. They don't have to pay it back. Um, and that's where the FAFSA comes in. It's the, the federal government's way to figure out who is eligible for what. Um, schools have the FAFSA information because schools have to award this federal aid um, and, and sort through it, if you will. Um, and so schools are sitting here, well, we have all this information. Why don't we use this tool that the federal government has created to also award our money? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's why the FAFSA kind of touches everything. Mm-hmm. So this can include, for example, I think two episodes ago I mentioned Pell Grants and some of the shifting kind of criteria for who qualifies and who doesn't. Um, you know, maybe you just talk about like that is a significant category, especially if you're a lower income family. What is a Pell Grant? Yeah, the Pell Grant is it is the government's pot of money to give to lower income students. It's awarded through the FAFSA results, and it the amount that students are eligible varies based on the results of the FAFSA. Uh, related to that, here in Minnesota, if if you go to Bethel, you can also be eligible for the Minnesota State Grant, which is essentially, uh, to put it simply, this the state of Minnesota's version of the Pell Grant, um, which again, running theme also awarded from the FAFSA. Okay. And so it's an important point because um, we, we very early on, we talked about the distinction between public and private. And so Bethel is not like, say, the Minnesota state system where you've got direct taxpayer funds going into your budget. But like indirectly, part of what does pay for people to go to places like Bethel is federal or state money that I guess is coming from taxpayers. Um, do colleges have the choice? Do they have to give Pell Grants? Or there's some colleges that opt out of this system? I'd imagine there are at least some religious colleges who feel like there are strings attached to taking money from the feds, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a choice by by the schools. And um, in my role as director at North Central, part of my job was maintaining our positive relationship with the government. And it's a lot of work to to 
have the ability to award Pell Grants, uh, but the advantages it gives to students are overwhelming. It, it makes college possible for millions of kids around around the country. Is there a set amount for a Pell Grant? Does that vary based on like the ability to pay of students? What, how do, I, I don't yes. even know. So. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the Pell Grant is calculated with a combination of how much does the school cost mm-hmm. and how much uh, essentially uh, how much do the parents make. Mm-hmm. Um, the FAFSA is much more complicated than, than that, but it's basically what it boils down to. Okay. Well, maybe this gets to an important concept, which is, I don't know if I've, I know the phraseology, but like ability to pay, right? Part of this is trying to take into account the idea that parents and or the students should probably contribute to the cost of their education, but not everyone has the same capacity to do so. How, how is that figured? Like what goes into that? Um, is it simply income? Is it other sorts of investments to like college saving plans affect this? Yeah. All of that. <laughs> uh, the the FAFSA asks for everything from uh, wages, uh, gross income. How much did you pay in taxes? How much do you have in investments? Do you own a business, and and how much is that business worth? Um, but it's it's not all treated equally. Hmm. Uh, there's there's protections in place um, such that uh, the government knows that 100% of the parent's income isn't going to go to school. Mm-hmm. So just because you make X amount of dollars doesn't mean the FAPS is going to reflect, hey, this, this student or this parent can pay X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a massive calculation that is well beyond my pay grade. Uh, but in the end, it, it, it creates, it's called an expected family contribution, EFC, which is really just a benchmark number where we can uh, place everyone in the country on the same continuum. Uh, it's not an actual, hey, my EFC is 3000 so I have to pay $3,000 to the school. That's just your, your place in line, if you will, your number that schools and the government use to figure out how much money you're eligible for. Okay. Now, does... Um, <clears throat> are there situations where students... <laughs> Are, or potential students are even if they are 18 years old. I mean, you're an adult where you're you're not tethered to your family's income as you're filling out things like the FAFSA. Yeah, yeah. So the FAFSA, we've been mostly talking about it from the parent perspective, but students also have a portion of the FAFSA that they complete where they put in their information. Um, usually, it's not much. Um, it's you know often, especially for high school students going going to college, they're not working enough to really impact anything on the FAFSA. Um, But it's certainly a factor, especially if uh, a student is maybe a little bit older and and took a gap year, maybe earned some money, that'll reflect and and show up um, as well. Okay. So let's talk about now how these people actually learn some of this stuff. Um, uh, this is the package you talked about before. What, what, what is the letter that families or students get and what would they see in that letter? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, at this point, the family has completed the FAFSA mm-hmm. that has gone to on the FAFSA, you list any schools that you want to send it to. So um, say you send it to Bethel, Bethel gets the FAFSA and they automatically figure out best award that they can offer, award being all of the money that they can give the student um, from the government, from the state, from Bethel itself. And that is then sent in a letter, the award the award letter. Um, 
And that's basically the, the first step from, from the family's perspective of the financial aid process. This is what I'm being offered from the school. So before we have talked about the difference between sticker price and net price. So now we're starting to move away from the sticker price because you know, maybe you've got federal or state government grant of some sort. But then you just alluded to the fact the school might be offering you financial aid of some sort that further is reducing the sticker price. So like what 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 might the school offers? If you were words like grants, scholarships, and then I think there are other things we could talk about. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the broad categories of financial aid is grants and scholarships. Uh, we've touched on grants a little bit in the Pell Grant, the state grant. Uh, Bethel has has a Bethel grant as well that that, um, that Bethel offers. And essentially, grant is an award based on the results of the FAFSA, um, based on ability to pay. <laughs> Scholarship is just like a grant in that it's free money, but it's based on merit, mm. achievement, uh, usually high school achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, so ACT, SAT scores, high school GPA. Um, for other schools, uh, it might be athletic mm-hmm. um, achievements. So Division One, Division Two, exactly. NAI, I think, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, if, you know, for transfer students, for example, um, the other college's GPA might factor into a merit scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll certainly be a large part of the award letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're talking about net price, what you can do is take the sticker price and subtract the grants and scholarships because that's money that's free to you. You don't, you don't need to pay it back. So you just have it. You can subtract that from the total. Sure. So one other scholarship maybe talk about it because I think, um, a lot of what you just described, um, students don't necessarily need to do anything more, right? This is stuff they've done previously, or if they're an athlete, they've been recruited, or they've sent their SAT or ACT scores. But you can get really specific scholarships where you can demonstrate a, demonstrate a particular merit. Like I know I have students who have music scholarships at Bethel, and I assume there's like an audition process they go through. Um, how do people figure this out? How do you learn? I mean, is this something to expect as part of the admissions process? Like when you're talking to departments or admissions counselors, should you be asking, saying, I've got this interest, I have this ability, do you offer scholarships with it? How, how do people learn about this? Yeah. Yeah. This is why it's so important to, to talk. <laughs> as, as you're uh, deciding on a college, talk to your admissions counselor, talk to financial aid, because they know of all of these buckets of money across the school, a music scholarship, a theater scholarship, um, stuff like that. But if you don't ask the question, then then they're not going to know that you're a great singer and might get the scholarship or are uh, interested in, in theater and could get that one. Um, unless you ask the question, what else is out there? Here's what I'm interested in. Right. And would you assume most schools have things like that that are worth fishing around for? Yeah, I think it's always worth asking. Okay. Um, if a school doesn't have anything, then then they'll say that. And, yeah. you know, those I guess you're not out anything by asking that question. Yeah. Um, when you get your financial aid package, it, are the – I know that some grants, things like that, that have stipulations in terms of the number of credits that you need to receive or um, – whether this is a renewable thing. I mean, how often is that package the, this is what you get for the first year, but that's sort of a, we want to get you in the door. So we give you a lower price for year one. How do you know what is going to continue from year to year or what 
Uh, for example, like I know the Minnesota State Grant has some credit requirements to get the full amount of that grant. Where does a student learn that information? Is that in that initial package or is that something they need to dig in a little more for? Yeah, it should be on the letter. Okay. Um, if there's uh, a link posted on the letter saying go here for more information, I would always recommend knowing what you need to do to keep this money. Uh, a school like Bethel offers uh, essentially a lock for portions of the scholarship or portions of the award letter um, for four years. So the academic scholarship, for example, uh, you'll just get that for all four years. Um, not all schools are like that. So it's always worth making sure that you you read the whole letter. Don't just look at the big number at the end that's exciting because that's the amount of money you're getting. But really make sure you're understanding uh, what you need to do to maintain eligibility throughout school. So I actually said an important resource is as you're in the admissions pipeline, you're asking questions maybe of your admissions counselor, but you also said you might be talking already to a financial aid counselor. Is that fairly typical? Like as part of like an admissions visit, you'd be introduced or you'd say, I'd like to talk to someone in financial aid. So even before you got the letter, are you already in a sense in conversation with possible financial aid givers? Yeah. Yeah. It certainly varies by school. Mm -hmm. Um, Some some admissions uh, departments at schools are highly trained in the financial aid side as well. And they can have those complex conversations with families. Uh, other schools uh, will be front up, uh, up front and say, you better reach out to financial aid as well because admissions will handle everything else but not financial aid. Um, I think it's always worth creating a conversation or a, a contact with financial aid um, because they'll be around for all four years um, or or more, depending on how, how long you're in school. Uh, admissions is really until you start, that's your contact. Um, so, so being um, proactive about building a relationship with financial aid is, is good. And when we think about these aid packages, are we talking about tuition or are we talking about other things, tuition, room and board, books, any, I mean, are any of those things under the umbrella of financial aid or is it really, we're talking about tuition? Yeah. Uh, it's the wider umbrella. I'd say any direct costs to, uh, to the school is certainly included. Uh, that might be room and board for a lot of students. Uh, for others, it might just be the tuition and any course fees mm-hmm. that exist. Um, Another aspect to consider is also uh, how much our book's going to cost. And those are estimated. Mm-hmm. Um, financial aid's not going to know the exact cost. No one's going to know the exact cost. Uh, but it's certainly a piece that the award letter may or may not have on it is mm-hmm. those estimated costs. Speaking of estimated, I, I feel, I don't know if I've seen this at Bethel's website or others, but it seems like often websites will include some sort of calculator to help you estimate. Uh, how good an indication is that? before you got the actual letter, the actual word package. Yeah. Uh, those calculators are, uh, they're as good as you make them. Okay. So if, if you're really detailed and accurate about the information you're putting in, then it will probably spit out a result that's, that gets close. It's never going to be perfect mm-hmm. because uh, financial aid and, and figuring out who's eligible for what is a much more complex a math problem than just a, a calculator online can can get to. So when 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 you get that that aid package letter, then are you getting? 
are you getting the school's best deal where it's like that's that's our best number we can give you or is or is that the beginning of a conversation a bit of both okay i'd say i'd say a bit of both uh most schools will say this is the best we can do and usually that's correct uh however it's always worth asking the question okay is there anything else um a school like bethel isn't I'm not going to say ever, but isn't often going to say, well, this school is offering you this, so we'll, we'll bump up ours. Sure. Um, it's not a game that, that a school like Bethel plays very often. Um, but at the same time, if, if it's not enough, then be honest about it. Lay it, lay it out. Here's where the gap is. And, and we really want to come to Bethel. Uh, but we're short X amount of dollars. Um, Bethel wants you at, at the school. We're not just going to let you walk over, um, you know, a small amount. Um, if it's, you know, if you're short by tens of thousands of dollars, sure. you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think any school is going to just hand that over. But um, just be honest about about how short you are. Where where are you short? And and it is the start of a conversation. Okay. So we've now brought the sticker price down through to the net price because of uh, different kinds of awards, um, money you don't have to pay back, so grand scholarships. Um, at this point now, are we to the question of how are you going to pay? Like, let's say you've accepted this offer, or maybe we should talk here about work study. I guess I don't know what bucket that fits in. Is that a way you can help pay whatever that number is that you still need to pay that year, or is that closer to a sky like i don't even know how to think about work study i yeah. know maybe talk about loans and other ways of, of paying for college yeah so step one is taking the tuition or the sticker price uh and subtracting the grants and scholarships the free money step two is then figuring out how much can i myself pay and that is done through uh there's a few options uh, one is most schools have a payment plan, which divides the payment uh, by by months, by weeks, depends on the school. Um, and there might be fees associated with that. Uh, there could be interest, uh, depends on the school. So that's one option. Another is, can I just make a flat payment um, up front, which is great. Schools love when you do that. Um and then the third is work study, which is what you mentioned, Chris. Uh, and that's essentially on-campus jobs um, that uh, that can be considered financial aid because uh, the school is, is paying for it. Or even the federal government usually gives schools some dollars to pay students in, in those on-campus jobs. So when a student has a work study job, does that money go directly into their bill or does it paid to them and then they can you can use that to pay yeah yeah the work study jobs are just like any other traditional job okay you get your paycheck every um whatever the pay period is two weeks a month um and you can choose what you want to do with that if you're going to use the work study earnings in your calculation uh then then it'll throw it off if you don't then when you make the money, use it towards the tuition. Sure. The other factor with work study is it's an estimate. It's, uh, you might be expecting $3,000, but if you only work, uh, $1,000 worth of hours, well, then that's all it's going to be. Um, and so I think it's important to, 
uh, work on finding a job during the summer before you start and have a conversation uh, with your uh, supervisor, if you're able to, with how many hours can I expect, what is the, the pay rate, um, and, and factor that into can I ask you a question? As a financial aid person from somebody who works in academic support, when you're talking with a student about how they're going to pay for this and they start talking about working during school, what do you say to that student? Like, 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 and I mean more than like a work study job. If they're thinking like, oh, I, you know, I can work, I have this job I already have where I can work 20, 30, 35, 40 hours a week. As a financial aid counselor, do you just bite your tongue or do you jump in and say something or? Yeah, it it depends. <laughs> if it's an off-campus job, um, say they're working for uh, the McDonald's down the street, you know, it's kind of on them to balance that. Okay. If it's work-study on campus, then we would say, you know, the max you can do is 20 hours a week across all I guess I mean more as like, are you – are you likely to get advice from a because like because because I will say from from a academic support perspective I would say once you get over twenty hours I mean research shows your grades drop a full letter grade so I'm wondering like are they hearing are, would a, would a student who's trying to figure this out would they potentially hear that message at the financial aid point or is financial aid not likely to jump into the advice game when it comes to that Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. With with the work study, we would say literally we're not going to let you work more than right, I, I, right, 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 right. <laughs> um, and we would certainly have that conversation of if your plan to pay for school is a forty hour a week job, that's not going to be successful. Okay, um, it's it's not often that a student comes flying and saying I'm going to work forty hours and do school, um, but. If that ever, if that scenario came up, then certainly we would. Okay. I'm just, I, that's honestly just a me curious question because we see that on another end. I'm curious what, because I assume as people are looking at that number they need to pay down, they're thinking, all right, if I can make $18 an hour at this job, they start to do the, 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 the math. And, you know, and, and cause I think this, this plays into how do you pay for that? And I think, I think, you know, if I can jump in with a piece of advice, that's not the way to pay for it is to try to work your way through it while you're doing it. That might have worked in the 60s. That's that just doesn't work for probably for most people in terms of what they would actually need to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would say that that typically the work study positions, uh, the goal would be to make that the living money maybe pay for books with it, mm -hmm. um, but not have it be a significant factor in actually paying for the, the net price. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the step that we're at, which is the, the payment plan, the out-of-pocket, the, the on-campus jobs, off-campus jobs, it's not the last step in the equation. And if you're talking to financial aid, this is just a, um, let's figure out how much you are capable of paying this semester, this year, so that when we move on to the, the next one, the scary loans conversation, mm -hmm. uh, we know that you're not going to overborrow because we've already figured out how much, how much you're able to pay yourself. And we, we should just pause here. I think we're all here assuming full-time students, probably residential students. There might be people listening who are going to do a part-time or a community college of some sort. So that would, that would change the equation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's assume, right? This is a full-time college student. 
there's a limit to how many hours they're going to work at a job they'll help them to pay. So now we have come to that scary step of you might need to take out loans in order to be able to make your payments for tuition plus probably room and board. I have no idea how this works. I know that my job is here because people are able to do this. I know my wife has student debts that she's paying off. Well, I made her pause right now. Take us through. I mean, this was your first job, Alex, right? Like, what, what does this look like when uh, you finally got to this point? Um, maybe first of all, like, where do loans come from? How do you decide what a wise amount and, and how do you decide where you want to take it from? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'll back up one step and say that the award letter is going to lay it out differently than how we've laid it out. It's going to take the sticker price and subtract the grants and scholarships and subtract the loans. And this is the, this number looks really good because we're assuming you're going to borrow hmm. the max that you're eligible for. So it's really just the out-of-pocket plus work-study right? what is that what, number is. Is what that number is. Okay. But I like to, when I'm having conversations, lay it out a different way, which is grants and scholarships out-of-pocket. And then we're looking at what is the loan amount mm-hmm. so that you're not over-borrowing. If, if the end number is, to use round numbers, $1,000, and you're thinking – great. I just have to pay a thousand dollars. I could have paid $10,000, but you're borrowing $20,000 in loans. Well, you're borrowing too much. You should pay the $10,000 and borrow $10,000 in loans because interest, as we all know, is going to build up uh, over the, the years in school and the years that you're repaying it. So I want to say that first, mm-hmm. but loans, um, I think are not always bad and they get, they get a bad rep. Um, and it's because of people borrowing way too much, uh, borrowing more than they need. Um, but there's some really good options out there. And I think if you think of higher education as an investment in yourself, then, you know, the loans might make sense in appropriate amounts. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the first category of loans comes from the federal government. They're called direct loans. Uh, there's two kinds, subsidized and unsubsidized. We're getting into some terms here, but the subsidized loan, the interest while you're in school is subsidized by the federal government. In other words, it doesn't build interest while you're in school. The unsubsidized loan operates more like a typical loan. It builds interest while you're in school. With both, you don't actually have to start making payments until after you graduate. And that's because the government assumes that you're not working, uh, you're in school. Mm-hmm. Um, those loans are almost always the best on the market for students. The government brings down the the interest uh, with ways only the government can. (laughs) Um, So I would certainly look at those two first. If you're offered subsidized loan, it's an interest-free loan for four years. You know, that's a good one. Um, Unsubsidized is literally identical. They're both good deals if, if you need it. If you don't need them, then don't take them. From there, uh, it gets to, um, Another group of loans, which is the private loans. Um, some schools call them alternative loans. So you might see that term as well. And that's lenders uh, that you've probably heard of, Wells Fargo, Discover, Citizens One, Sally Mae, right? These big lenders. Um, or just the bank that you work with, the credit union you work with. They might offer student loans. Um, that's kind of after you looked at the federal loans, that's the next uh route because the interest rate will be higher because they'll expect payment right away both yeah typically they still don't expect payment immediately um but they might they might expect interest payments while in school 
often you need a cosigner, a parent to cosign, um, or a relative, a friend. Um, and these are not that the other loans aren't real, but these are real loans. These are private institutions who are there to make money. Um, and so, yeah, they're going to have a little bit higher interest rates. Um, but again, if, if you've done the work to figure out how much can I pay, how much am I getting from the federal government? This is, you know, the last bit, then yeah, it's okay to, to dip into those private loans because like I said, it's, it's an investment in yourself. Mm-hmm. And if, if it takes borrowing a little bit of this private loan to get a degree and set yourself up for that future path, then it is worth it. Yeah. I mean, we've, I think Sam and I are both, as most professors are, uncomfortable with the notion of this. these are customers or these are investors. But if we have to use this language, I do like the notion of this is one of the big investments you will make in your life, right up there with your mortgage. And it's different debt than, say, I'm going to run up a credit card bill because I want to consume things that are going to last for a month or two and then go away or an experience that will go away. Like, this is something that, uh, in a sense, hopefully it's adding value to for the rest of your life, whether that's the career you're set up for, the relationships you form, the learning you've had. Um, and again, if it's a federal loan, the interest rates are very different than what you might be accustomed to with other types of, of borrowing that you might have to do later in your life. But yeah, I mean, so right now in the news, we should probably touch in here. Like there is a fair amount of, I don't know if it's actual discussion or just speculation about loan forgiveness. You know, in a sense, there's been kind of a loan deferment, right? I can't remember when during COVID they said you don't have to make payments in your student loans, and that's been extended. But now there's even, at least on the political left, some discussion of could there be significant uh, forgiveness? I think it already exists for certain professions, certain kinds of work that have more public service, right? Um, I don't know how much is something you're you're involved in, Alex, but can you just give us a brief primer on what, what is loan forgiveness? Is this something an 18-year-old now should be thinking about as part of the equation, or is that not something to be counting on? Yeah. I think the political conversations that are happening, I certainly wouldn't plan on that as you're making your decisions. That is high risk, maybe high reward, but very high risk. Uh, but yeah, there are other kinds of forgiveness that exists for the, for the federal loans specifically. Um, if you go into public service, for example, there's some routes there. If you, uh, become a teacher, maybe in a, in a high need field or a high need school, there might be some, some avenues there for, for forgiveness. And it's certainly worth looking into, um, those options. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'll mention with the loans for the federal loans specifically is uh, there's there's creative uh, payment plans that exist for the federal loans. I think a lot of people think, man, once I graduate, I'm going to have to make this set amount payment each month. But there's actually something called uh, the income based repayment plan, which is you send your government every year your your W twos, your tax form. Um, basically your, your income information, and they'll calculate how much is an appropriate amount to pay. For some people, that amount that is calculated is $0, and that is counted as an on-time payment, hmm. your $0 payment. Um, and then after, I believe it's 30 years, uh, anything that is left is forgiven by the government. Um, so if you're going into a field that doesn't doesn't pay as well, or you're struggling to find a job, uh, don't just not pay. Uh, I'd say sign up for that income-based repayment plan, and, and you'll get credit even for $0 months. 
Because the real concern, and in here where there should be something you know, like defaulting on a loan is a significant, and it can happen. Like sometimes people need to declare bankruptcy, but that that is something to be concerned about. Earlier on, I think I point people towards the kind of education or the college scorecard the education department keeps, and they'll give you, I think, the average loan amount. If it's for students or for graduates, and then the loan default rate. So as you're talking about what is the right amount of loans, is that a helpful number to look at a college and say, well, a typical graduate of this place usually winds up four years or six years later with this amount, or is it more based on your personal circumstances or like your career expectations? How do you how do you calculate this is an appropriate amount of loans to take out to pay for college? Yeah. Yeah, that number can be helpful because it gives you guidance on what are other people doing. This is the average amount of people that go through this, this university, what, what they're doing. Um, but it's, it's very situational. You know, you need to think, what field am I going into? What is my potential, uh, future income? Uh, am I going to, to grad school? And this is the step that needs to happen to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, these are all factors to what is an appropriate amount of loans. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier, but, um, you know, I think it's important to just talk, have the conversation. These financial aid counselors at schools, they have the same conversation hundreds of times, thousands of times. They know what is an appropriate amount. Um, and if you say, hey, I think I need to borrow this amount, does that, does that sound appropriate or is that too much? Uh, they'll know. They'll, they'll know. And, and I can't speak for every financial aid counselor out there, but uh, I certainly would have been honest and, and I think it's the ethical thing to do to, mm -hmm. to be honest with students of, uh, is this too much or is this an appropriate amount? So when you mentioned the, the loan, I forget what you called the, the loan that matches your income. What was that program called? Sorry. Yeah. So it's, uh, the income based repayment. Okay. Income based repayment option. You said, you know, after 30 years and whatever, it's like, like, what is the, and I realized there is no normal or like, how long should a person expect that they're going to have college debt if they're trying to be responsible with all these things? Like, like, is it a, is it a 10 year thing? Is it a 20 year thing? Is 30 years what we would expect? Yeah, that one's longer <laughs> because the government knows a lot of people are going to be submitting $0 payments. We're not going to sure. the whole thing after a year. Right. Um, but each repayment option is going to say, what is the standard? Okay. Amount. What is the term of repayment? Um, I think 10 years is very common. Mm -hmm. 20 years, fairly common. Um, and I'd encourage people to, if you're able to pay early, do it. It's great to get a loan like that off, off, off the books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, we're running longer than I thought because this is so informative, and I feel like I finally understand this. But let me close with a couple of big questions, Alex. And the first one is actually about questions. We've covered a lot of ground. I, hopefully, we've touched on touched on everything I had on my list. Hopefully, Sam, we got most years. What's a question you wish more people would ask, or what's a question that maybe doesn't as naturally occur to students or families as they're going through this process that they should be asking? Yeah. Yeah, this might be a bit of a cop-out, <laughs> but I think the question I wish people asked more is literally any question. <laughs> okay. And what I mean by that is uh, it's all too common that students come into the financial aid office when it's too late. They've, they've already uh, passed by deadlines for certain scholarships. They've already 
gotten too far in and now the only option is to borrow this huge loan because the semester has started and they're going to get kicked out unless unless they pay. Um, that's harsh. I don't I don't know if Bethel actually does that, but uh, it could happen if, if you just ignore the bill, right? And so I think the question that I wish I heard more is, you know, how do I, how do I make this work? I have this gap. How do I pay it? Um, because the financial aid office, it's scary in that, uh, it's the money place and college is a big bill, but the people that work in financial aid offices want it to work. I mean, we're, we're passionate. I was passionate. I still am passionate about financial aid in that it is, it is the way that makes college possible. And so having those conversations with students about here's how you specifically can make it work based on your situation, based on your circumstances, based on your income, here's how you can make it work. Um, but we can't have the conversation unless people come in and say, how do I make this work? Yeah. I mean, there is, there's a part of the for-profit higher ed sector that is somewhat predatory, but I would say if you're working with accredited, like four-year nonprofit college, I mean, they have no interest, let alone any ethical concerns in having students come and then having to drop out because they can't pay, right? They, they want to retain and graduate students. They want to make this work. It's, it's in everyone's interest. And so that's fantastic advice. So the closing question is, I'll go back to where you started, which is to say, this is scary. Right. Like lots of this is scary. Now we're getting into the real, the rubber meets the road. Can I actually, you know, I found the college I dreamed of. It fits. I got there and all of a sudden it felt right. And now I'm not sure. I, you know, I think part of it is information. It's asking questions. Is there anything else you can tell people to help alleviate some of that, that fear, that stress, that anxiety that attaches to financial aid? Yeah. I think just knowing that it's not your job to know all the nuances of financial aid. Uh, when you're in high school or even while you're in college, uh, it is the financial aid office's job to know all those nuances. So have the conversation with them and then you don't have to worry about, am I missing one of these nuances? That's their job to figure out. Okay. Alex, this has been great. Super helpful. Listeners, I hope it was helpful to you. If you do have follow-up questions, send them to us at channel3900 at gmail.com. If we can't answer them, maybe we can get Alex to, to uh, send back some responses. But uh, this has been really helpful for me, Sam. Uh, you know, We will use this ourselves, and hopefully listeners, you will too. We'll be back next week with another new episode of College for Christians. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.